Bookstack with Richard Aldous. Welcome back to the fourth season of the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Timothy Gartenash, author of the new book, Homelands, A Personal History of Europe. Uh, Timothy, welcome to Bookstack. Great to be with you. And congratulations uh, on the new book. So why A Personal History of Europe? Well, this book took me just 50 years to write. <laughs> 50 years of traveling around Europe, um, witnessing events, meeting people, worrying about Europe, writing about Europe, also studying Europe in more conventional ways. And it's personal, not just because I have that 50 years of experience, which illustrates the history. So it's a, it's a pretty unusual genre. It's history illustrated by memoir and reportage because it's a story told through individual personal stories. So it's also the personal stories you know, of great figures like Helmut Kohl and Margaret Thatcher, but also of quote-unquote ordinary people who actually play a very important part in this history. And as you say, I mean, it's a genuinely fascinating blend. You yourself have been involved in many of the events that you cover going right back to the, uh, to the 1980s and the, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, but a lot of this is history. Uh, you're very keen to say at the very beginning that you're using a lot of the most recent and up-to-date scholarship. So that kind of blend of documents, scholarship, your own memories, and you're very explicit at the beginning where you say this is not an impartial history. Uh, this is very much coming from your view as you've seen things as they've developed over the 40, 50 years of your career. That That's exactly right. And so... What it is, because obviously, you know, you couldn't write the whole comprehensive history of Europe since 1945 um, in less than 5,000 pages. But what it is, there are really two leitmotifs of my own life's work, which are Europe and freedom. And so what I would say is it's the story of Europe and freedom. So when I first started traveling to Europe, which is in the early 1970s, most Europeans were still living under dictatorships. The most young Europeans today, probably most young Americans, they find that an amazing statement. Not just the whole of Eastern Europe, Spain, Portugal, and Greece were all under dictatorship. And you have this amazing upward curve across 30 plus years from the mid-1970s, the end of the fascist dictatorships in Spain and Portugal and Greece, all the way through to the early mid-2000s of an un unprecedented spread of freedom, of liberal democracy, of the EU, of NATO, you know, all the way to the Baltic states, which didn't exist on the political map of Europe in 1989. And then, this is the second rather saddest part of the story, I argue since 2008, you have what I call the downward turn and a whole cascade of crises in European history, all the way down to the 24th of February, 2022, Putin's full-scale invasion of Ukraine and the largest war in Europe since 1945. So, Richard, in a way I could never have imagined when I set out writing the book, it's bookended by the end of a major war in Europe, 1945, and the beginning of a major land war in Europe, 2022. And it's, it's very striking that one of the themes that does come through in the book is this sense of you as a participant in this as a European, that you have a stake in this as a European. Uh, you make the point very early on in the book that, uh, that you feel at home abroad. 
But in in some ways, as the book goes on, it's clear that uh, Europe is not abroad for you, that you think of yourself essentially as someone who is European. So that is so right. And if you ask what is a unique feature of Europe, you know, you could answer that in, in some different ways. You could talk about its political institutions or its history. For me, it's a lived experience of being at home abroad, right? So I'm in Paris, I'm in Berlin, I'm in Prague, I'm in uh, Tallinn. I'm clearly abroad. It's a foreign country. People are speaking a different language. Um, but I also feel at home as a European, as an English European. And that explains the title, which I have to say I'm rather pleased with, which is Homeland. So, you know, in the US, generally homeland is in the singular, as in homeland security. Right? Um, for Europeans, we can have multiple homelands. And that's the wonderful thing about Europe, because it also captures that unique European quality, which is a mixture of unity and diversity, right? Europe is not a single homeland, never will be. There's not going to be a United States of Europe, certainly in the foreseeable future, but we all have so much in common. And it's striking that, I mean, you quote uh, the famous Harold Macmillan off-the-cuff remark about de Gaulle, uh, that he says Europe, he means France. But when you say Europe, you really do mean Europe. I do. I mean the real Europe. That's to say, close to 50 different countries, incredibly diverse, different languages, cultures, histories, also their regions, their cities are very different. And yet at the same time, having this sense of a shared history. And of course, what's unique to the period I'm writing about, unlike the previous 2,500 years, really a growing sense of a shared future. It's interesting the way in which you do bring in the, the, the personal elements of your own background as well, that uh, again, early on, you talk about the fact that uh, your mother uh, grew up in India. And so that, that sense that if you're in India, it's very clear that uh, whether you're English or French or German, whatever you might be, that you are European, that that sense of European identity is very clear when you're on the Asian subcontinent. That clearly had an effect on your upbringing too. Absolutely. So both my parents had very little to do with Europe and, and both were Eurosceptic. But my mother, who was a daughter of a, someone in the Indian civil service, so she was born in, in Kolkata uh, or Calcutta as it was then. The only time I ever heard her talk about herself as a European was when she was reminiscing about being in India in 1945. And she said, as a European, one would go out riding early in the morning, right? And she didn't realize what she was saying. And as I say in the book, you know, the, 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 the only people who don't think of the English as Europeans are the English themselves. So uh, as you said at the very beginning, this, although this is in, in many ways a personal memoir, it's also a work of history. Um, you talk about the importance of writers and the influence of writers like Tony Judd on you, for example, and, and that monumental book, uh, Post-War. Uh, but the book starts in 1945. Um, what lessons do you think that Europeans learn from that experience uh, of the Second World War and more broadly, uh, the first 50 years uh, of the century, which I, I think at one stage you describe as uh, having been hell on earth for Europe? Although it's a personal history, the story has to start in 1945 in that hell 
that Europe had become at, by the end of the Second World War. Um, I wasn't there. I was minus 10 years old in 1945. But fortunately, my father was, because my father landed with the very first wave on D-Day, the 6th of June, 1944, Normandy landings, 7.30 a.m., Versiomar, and then fought all his way across Northern Europe and ended up his gun troop occupying a village in Northern Germany. So I actually went back to this village called Westen and unfolds through talking to survivors there the whole story of that moment when Europe was the hell. I mean, in this village, there were there were slave laborers from Eastern Europe. There was a chemical weapons factory. There were Nazis, of course. There were refugees from Silesia. There were refugees from the bombing of Hamburg. All European history, and just up the road was Bergen-Belsen. So all that hell. And you tell the story very movingly at the end of the book of, of going to the memorial to see those of your father's friends who died in the Normandy landings. And it could have been him. He was what was called a forward observation officer for the Royal Artillery. And this was a very risky job because you had to go right up to the front line and then climb up the highest object, often a church tower, to, to, to direct the guns so that several of his friends, his contemporaries in the same regiment, were killed and their names are on this. Extraordinary, by the way, very beautiful and moving uh, Normandy war, war memorial for those who served under British command. The lesson Europeans drew, all Europeans drew, is never again. That was the first commandment of post-1945 Europe, so that Tony Tony Judd's book, Post-War, the title has a double meaning. You know, obviously, it means after the Second World War, but it also means a Europe that was determined to get beyond war, never again. And the irony of the story is, of course, first of all, that there were invasions and violent repression in Eastern Europe for, for much of the Cold War. Then as soon as we got beyond that, we had five wars in former Yugoslavia over 10 years. I, I was there. I describe in some detail my experience in former Yugoslavia. And then when we got beyond that, we said, never again, again. And here we are once again in a major war. So it's a kind of, it's a never that somehow never comes. Yeah, if the if the war was the uh, thing that had a major impact on that generation, for you personally, um, it seems to have been the other theme that you identified at the beginning of the conversation, freedom, that uh, you talk about your the first trip that you made by train, traveling through uh, East Germany, so on the other side of the Iron Curtain, uh, traveling on to uh, Berlin, seeing the Berlin Wall for the first time uh, in the 1970s. That clearly had a major impact on you uh, as a young man. It, it did indeed. And then I lived in both West and East Berlin, and it was an absolutely formative moment for me because, of course, we were in a bipolar world. So Europe was the center of a divided world. Germany was the center of a divided Europe, and Berlin was the center of a divided Germany. So you were at the absolute epicenter of, so to speak, world his history. Uh, if you traveled through Checkpoint Charlie, as I did, between West and, and East Berlin. Um, and very early on, I mean, in the late 1970s, traveling around Eastern Europe, I became fascinated by the dissidents, the opposition movements, got to know the people who would then lead the solidarity movement in Poland, people like Václav Havel and the Czech the Czechoslovakia, who's a great hero of the book. And so I was incredibly lucky to witness at first hand basically that decade of the emancipation and eventually liberation 
of what we then called Eastern Europe, Europe behind the Iron Curtain, largely peace. And it was a, it was a formative experience. And, and why did it happen, do you think? As, as, as you point out, historically, there'd been the uprisings in East Germany in 53. There'd been the, the Hungarian uprising in 56, Czechoslovakia in 68, uh, Poland in the, in the early 1980s. What was it about 1989 that allowed this incredible event, uh, the collapse eventually, uh, of the entire uh, Soviet empire by 1991 to actually happen? Simple question requires a slightly longer answer. But what I'll start by saying is that the, we've all fallen, or many people have fallen victim to what the French philosopher Henri Bergson called the illusions of retrospective determinism. I love that thing. The almost irresistible temptation to be persuaded that what actually happened somehow had to happen, that it was inevitable. There was nothing at all inevitable about the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Velvet Revolutions, the end of the Soviet Empire. It was actually a one in a million example of historical luck because at least four major developments came together like, like the tributaries of a great river. There was, of course, Gorbachev. Without Gorbachev, it would never have happened. We might still have a Soviet bloc to this day. You, you can't remove a nuclear-armed superpower by force. Uh, you had the Central and East European dissidents, people like Václav Havel and Bronislav Geremek, who took the opportunity given by Gorbachev, which is an amber light, not a green light, and found a way to turn it into a full-scale transition to national independence and democracy. You had Ronald Reagan, U.S. policy, and then wonderfully, when Reagan has made this great turn from the ultimate torrid cold warrior in his first term to the ultimate peacenik in his second term, wanting full-scale nuclear disarmament, an amazing part of the story. And then wonderfully, you have this transition to George H.W. Bush, just at the perfect moment. So you have the much more emollient, cautious, diplomatic, realist, quote-unquote, George H.W. Bush, to assist in the actual negotiation of German unification and the end of, end of communism. And then, of course, you have the, the magnetism of Western Europe, the fact that Western Europe was seen to be prosperous, free, and uniting, and just overwhelmingly attractive at that time. So when, when Poles or Czechs said, the return to Europe. We want to be a normal country. They were thinking like West Germany or like France or like Britain. And so wonderfully, in a, in a great example of what Machiavelli calls Fortuna, these four quite distinct developments all come together in that moment of 1989 to 1991. And then, of course, the last part of the story, which is the collapse of the Soviet Union itself, has a slightly different dynamic. And the the, the really unusual feature there is because the Soviet Union, was it a Russian empire or was it a Soviet empire? This was unclear. It was ambiguous. It was a complex story. And therefore, I think uniquely in history, it's a central colonial power, Russia under Boris Yeltsin, which gives the final push, um, the final death blow 
delivered to the Soviet Union. It's interesting uh, that you talk about uh, George H.W. Bush there. We've had uh, Frank Costagliano on uh, talking about his uh, terrific biography of George Kennan. Also had Mary Sorotti on talking about uh, that period of the 1990s. Um, And both of those books have this sense of perhaps a, a lack of vision and then the vision becoming NATO enlargement, which leads on to other events. Some have even argued, like Michael Mandelbaum, that there's a direct connection between NATO enlargement, what happened at this period, and uh, say something like the war in Ukraine. What were the challenges for you in telling this story about the post-Cold War world as you were writing? So can I start by saying that I think it's a, and I, and I hope I demonstrate in this Book, that it's a profound misunderstanding to believe that NATO enlargement was the cause of Putin's aggression towards Ukraine. As I, I tell the story in the book of meeting Vladimir Putin when he was a totally unknown deputy mayor of St. Petersburg in 1994, just three years after the end of the Soviet Union, um, no NATO enlargement had happened. The first NATO enlargement happened five years later. And he spoke up at this conference in St. Petersburg, and he said, we have to remember that there are territories that historically always belong to Russia, and uh, the Russian Federation has to be thinking about them. And he mentioned Crimea, 1994. So I think it's a profound misunderstanding to ascribe to NATO enlargement. Of course, he didn't like it. Of course, Russia didn't like NATO coming closer. That's, that's clear. But I think to say that is the main cause. Uh, is simply an uh, interpretative um, mistake. And Marie Sorotta's book, which is a wonderful piece of very detailed um, documentary history, but her what if at the end, which is what if we'd left Eastern Europe in this halfway house of partnership for peace. I mean, imagine if you were Estonian today on the border to Russia and you weren't in NATO. You wouldn't be sleeping peacefully in your bed, and probably Russia would have taken a bite out of Estonia too. So I think that's a great mistake. Now, melding these two stories, I mean, of course, it's a challenge to the historians and the author's art. But what's interesting is that actually in that great project of Europe, Poland, three, George H.W. Bush's phrase from 1989, um, NATO and EU become intertwined, right? So they are, I talk about them as the two strong arms of the geopolitical West, right? So people forget that Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic came into NATO first, before the EU. And then many other countries came in at the same time into the EU and NATO. And interestingly today, you know, Finland and Sweden, which for a long time were EU members, but not in the NATO, now they've joined NATO. And those who are in NATO, but not the EU, like a few countries in Southeast Europe, want to join the EU. So actually, part of the story is about how these two somewhat different communities, the, the security community and the political and economic communities, um, have essentially become so closely intertwined. One of the most personal elements of the book uh, comes in the story of Brexit. You recount uh, watching a, a video of the 2012 Olympics opening ceremony, which seemed to, to you represent a, a vision of cosmopolitan welcoming Britain. 
Uh, and you said that when you reviewed this, uh, I think in 2020, that you cried tears of joy at that moment, but tears of sadness for what you felt uh, had been lost over Brexit. Um, I, I was struck when I was reading that, that in some ways, and I say this as, as one Englishman to another, that it was a very un-English way of writing about uh, political uh, events. But it's clearly uh, something that means a great deal to you and has caused you a lot of personal uh, anguish, it seems to me. It's a tragedy, you know, for someone who is an English European whose whole life is bound up with Europe to see Britain make this, in my view, largest foreign policy mistake, certainly since Suez 1956, but arguably since the 1930s. And we're now seeing the economic cost exactly as we foretold. We've seen a precipitate loss in uh, influence, international standing, international reputation. I mean, that, that, that cost is, I think, as large as the economic one. And very hard to see us recovering that. You know, if you travel around continental Europe now, people hardly talk about Britain at all. It's just out of it, out of it, gone. And, and in the perception of the U.S. too, it's clearly much diminished by this. But it's also a significant loss to Europe itself. You know, if you think about in the context of the war in Ukraine, you know, defense really matters, intelligence matters, diplomacy matters and not to mention economics, all these things where Britain has great strengths um, and they are, you know, now at one remove from, from the EU. So I think it's a, a tragedy for Europe too. And it's, it's very, very difficult to see, see a way back. So it is, I wish you hadn't reminded me of it because it is profoundly depressing. Yeah, and it, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, I wonder, you know, by what what is it that you think has actually changed by Brexit? Because by most standards, Britain is still one of the most cosmopolitan countries, multicultural countries in Europe. Um, it's one of the, it's the, depending which measure you use, fifth or sixth richest country in the world, still important in, in NATO. And and actually, as, as um, Janan Ganesh pointed out in the Financial Times uh, uh, earlier, the, earlier this week, it's the only, I think, pretty much the only European country that doesn't have a far-right membership in its parliament. So is there a danger of overstating what Brexit actually means in terms of Britain's status? When you say there's no far-right representation in parliament, I could point to a few conservative MPs. But you, you know as well as I do that that's a cheap trick to say that, that, that a far-right agenda is something very explicit about uh, the demise of democracy, as you, as you outline, actually, in, in the very powerful section that you have on Hungary. I mean, because in the United States, you could say, you know, you don't have a far-right because they're not a party like the AFD in Germany. But if you look at inside the Republican Party, there are people who ideologically. So, for example, we have a foreign secretary who wants to send uh, migrants to Rwanda before their asylum claims have even been assessed. And that seems to me, you know, very much very similar to the agenda of the hard right. But isn't that a, a policy which um, the, the European Union is now looking to, uh, to copy? And I certainly don't want to get distracted on to, too much onto contemporary politics. But my only point that I'm trying to, to make is that 
you know, I, I wonder whether the, the fact that you feel so deeply about Brexit uh, and that you're so personal and upfront about that in the book in a way that uh, is genuinely moving and insightful. I just wonder whether part of you also recognizes that there is another side to that argument. So let me be clear, because I'm glad you're pushing me on this, and it's a great question. And of course, there's hyperbole about this, as there is about everything else. So what we have lost and what we haven't lost. I mean, Britain is not going to become a basket case. It still has extraordinary strengths, great universities, science, tech, financial services, creative industries. I would say our democracy is in better shape than quite a few Western democracies, including the United States. Democracy actually has stood the test of Brexit. So when Boris Johnson tried to suspend Parliament, he was immediately slapped down with, I mean, in, by a, in a magnificent verdict of our Supreme Court, uh, and nobody questioned that verdict. It was, it was a, so, so I think our democracy has survived. Uh, I also think, look, we have a Hindu prime minister, we have a black foreign secretary, we have a Muslim uh, mayor of London and a Muslim leader of the Scottish Nationalists. So actually, in terms of another great theme of the book, um, diversity and living with diversity or integration on Britain is doing rather well. So, so in all those respects, I, I, I'm not going to pretend that we're going down the drain. But I think in terms of what I also value in, in, in Britain and in the Blair years, in terms of contributing, if you like, to a larger liberal international agenda through the relationship with the English-speaking world, but also through the membership of the European Union. Because the wonderful thing about you know, the 2000s and 1990s that we had both, right? We were comfortable in the English-speaking world, but also in the European Union. That, I think, has been significantly lost. And for me, that is a, is a great loss because, you know, what one might crudely call liberal international order doesn't have all that many good friends at the moment and quite a few enemies. Um, liberal international order, but but there were huge divides between the Blair government that you just mentioned there uh, and European allies, particularly France, over over the war in Iraq. Sure, but of course, if Iraq split Europe down the middle. I mean, as, as Blair himself, and I, I go and talk to Blair for the book, and he points out, you know, that a lot of the East Europeans were actually on the side of the Bush administration and Spain and Portugal, and and, and Spain and Portugal, and so you know, it, it actually split. I mean, this is, en passant, um, this is why a Gaullist version of European Union, Europe as an alternative, a rival superpower to the United States, is never going to fly because it's always going to split Europe rather than united. And uh, finally, when you think about the future of Europe uh, and the EU, what do you think that that looks like? What, what does it look like in terms of the European Union specifically? We saw the president of the EU uh, recently talking about being ready to expand to new countries by uh, 2030. But what about on also on a more existential level? You talk at the end of the book, uh, about a sentence that was in the original draft. Uh, are we fated to go all the way back? Well, of course, that's going to be the next book on which I'm already working. But um, <laughs> I've been to Ukraine three times in the last nine months. I spent half my time on it. And 
you know, I've been to Butcher and seen the sites of the massacre to Borodjanka, met people who are now dead at the front line. You know, we are in that sense back to the horrors of 1945. So that a, a large part of the answer to your question depends on how we come out of the crisis in Ukraine. You know, Heraclitus said war is the father of all things. And the, the irony of this story is that horrific though it is, it has actually essentially opened the door to a new agenda of eastward enlargement, which had effectively been closed since 2008. So now we actually have, you mentioned this, a serious European discussion about the enlargement of both the EU and NATO to Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, and the Western Balkans, such that we might have an EU of 36 members, and by the way, a larger NATO too. That would be a great, big, really important step forwards towards a Europe whole and free. So that's the good news. There's a big opportunity there. The bad news is that in a lot of countries, you have nationalist populists. I mean, Viktor Orban, of course, in Hungary, but we have a Polish election coming up in mid-October where their version of Viktor Orban may actually win for the third time, which would be very bad for democracy in Poland. At the moment, if there was a presidential election in France tomorrow, Marine Le Pen might well win. The RFD, the you know, hard-right nationalist xenophobic party in Germany, is now polling above Chancellor Scholz's Social Democrat. And so what the danger is not five more Brexits, you know, Paul exit and Hang exit and Ital exit. On the contrary, it is that all these um, nationalist populist leaders will pull the entire European Union away from its what one might call classical liberal uh, universalist values to go with a much more nativist, particularist, traditionalist, and nationalist version of Europe. So I think big opportunity, but also big danger. Bottom line, nothing is inevitable. It's up to us. So the book is Homelands, The Personal History of Europe. It's written by my guest, Timothy Garton-Ash, and it's published by Yale University Press. Uh, but for now, Timothy, congratulations again. It really is a wonderful, wonderful book. Thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Many thanks. Real pleasure. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>